Thank you so much for that. First Chronicles chapter 19 this evening, please. First Chronicles chapter 19. And let's go ahead and stand. And we're going to read chapter 19 and chapter 20 this evening. Now it came to pass after this that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, died, and his son reigned in his stead. And David said, I will show kindness unto Hanan, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. And David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. So the servants of David came into the land of the children of Ammon to Hanan to comfort him. But the princes of the children of Ammon said to Hanan, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he hath sent comforters unto thee? Are not his servants come unto thee for to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? Wherefore Hanan took David's servants and shaved them, and cut off their garments in the midst hard by their buttocks, and sent them away. Then there went certain and told David how the men were served. And he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown, and then return. And when the children of Ammon saw that they had made themselves odious to David, Hanan and the children of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire them, chariots and horsemen out of Mesopotamia, and out of Syria, Maica, and out of Zobah. So they hired thirty and two thousand chariots. And the king of Maica and his people, who came and pitched before Medeba, and the children of Ammon gathered themselves together from their cities and came to battle. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the children of Ammon came out and put the battle in array before the gate of the city, and the kings that were come by themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him before and behind, he chose out of all the choice of Israel and put them in array against the Assyrians. And the rest of the people he delivered into the hand of Abishai his brother, and they set themselves in array against the children of Ammon. And he said, If the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for thee, then I will help thee. Be of good courage. Let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people and for the cities of our God. And let the Lord do that which is good in his sight. So Joab and the people that were with him drew nigh before the Syrians into the battle, and they fled before him. And when the children of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fled... They likewise fled before Abishai his brother and entered into the city. Then Joab came to Jerusalem, and when the Syrians saw that they were put to the worst before Israel, they sent messengers, drew forth the Syrians that were beyond the river, and Shopak, the captain of the host of Hadarezer, went before them. And it was told David, and he gathered all Israel and passed over Jordan and came upon them and set the battle in array against them. So when David had put the battle in array against the Syrians, they fought with him. But the Syrians fled before Israel, and David slew the Syrians 7,000 men which fought in chariots. 
40,000 footmen and killed Shopak, the captain of the host. And when the servants of Hadarezer saw that they were put to the worst before Israel, they made peace with David and became his servants. Neither would the Syrians help the children of Ammon anymore. And it came to pass that after the year was expired, at the time that kings go out to battle, Joab led forth the power of the army and laid waste the country of the children of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried at Jerusalem and Joab smote Rabbah and destroyed it. And David took the crown of the king from off his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold and there was precious stones in it and it was set upon David's head and he brought also exceeding much spoil out of the city. And he brought out the people that were in it and cut them with saws and harrows of iron and with axes. Even so dealt David with the cities of, with all the cities of the children of Ammon. And David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And it came to pass after this that there arose war with the Gezer of, with the Philistines, at Gezer with the Philistines. At which time Shibakai the Hushathite slew Sippai that was of the children of the giant and they were subdued. And there was war again with the Philistines, and Elhanan the son of Jair slew Lami the brother of Goliath the Gittite, whose spear staff was like a weaver's beam. And yet again there was war with Gath, where was a man of great stature, whose fingers and toes were four and twenty, six on each hand and six on each foot, and he also was the son of the giant. But when he defied Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimea, David's brother, slew him. These were born unto the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And we will stop there this evening, and let's pray. Lord, as always, we acknowledge, first of all, that these are your words breathed out by your Spirit. They are authentic, they are accurate, they are authoritative. And our prayer, then, is that we would understand what you are saying and the reason to which you are the people to whom you are speaking in the reason for which you said it this father comes only through your spirit to us and so we pray for his help to that end in Jesus name amen and you may of course be seated well the chronicler continues in this passage and you may have noted if you looked into the 21st chapter, the the events will change substantially in the chapter ahead. But the chronicler continues to remind, right, the immediate recipient of the letter. Obviously it's for us and we will come to that. But the immediate recipients of the book of Chronicles are returning exiles. These are people who, in many ways, are greatly discouraged. These are people who, in many ways, have, of course, no direct memory. The events that we're talking about are 500 years old to them. They have, at some level, a hard time appropriating the promises and the victories of God to their own situation. We want always to keep that in mind. What What would God say to a group? What would God say, for instance, I keep coming back to this, what would God say to us when the reality is that our experiences of the church 
are in no way comparable to the experiences of the church in the book of Acts. It is certainly not to gloat. And it is not all written to condemn. It is written in many ways to encourage. To remind and to encourage. So God is not rubbing their noses in the failure of the Israeli people by reminding them of the great victories that David had, but actually just the opposite. He is reminding them that he has not finished with the nation of Israel and that what happens to the nation of Israel is far more in his hand than it is in the people's hand. Now they have obligations. I'm not suggesting for a moment that they don't and they bear responsibility. But once again, the text will remind us that the secret of Israel's success is not simply in the man David or his might. These two chapters, chapter 19 and 20, have as their almost singular emphasis the stunning strength of David's kingdom. They, they put on display the absolute uncontested power of David's kingdom. He had, of course, begun by seeking the Lord and moving the religious activities to Jerusalem where they belonged. God had made with him the Davidic covenant and established him to be the king. And then we have kind of this retrospective of how God was going to do that. What was God going to do to establish David as this great dominant kingdom in the world that it is. <clears throat> and again, these two chapters, and we're just going to kind of walk back through them, they are um, not equal in their volume in what they deal with, but they are equal in that we have two distinct episodes, each of them set to magnify David's strength, his military strength. They are not simply about his godliness. They are not about the economic success of the kingdom. They are not about the safety and the prosperity that the people enjoyed. They are simply just about this. That, that you did not mistreat David's kingdom. That you did not make the mistake of thinking that David's kingdom was an insignificant thing. The first episode begins in chapter 19, verse number 1, and actually continues all the way into chapter 20 and verse number 3. And this is David's strength demonstrated over the Ammonites. And before we go into this, let's just re refresh our experiences with who the Ammonites are. The Ammonites are the result of Lot's incest with one of his daughters. This goes back to Genesis 19.38. The younger she also bare a son, called his name Ben-Ami, the same as the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. Ben-Ami. Ben-Ami, the son of incest, or the son of inbreeding. That's what she named her little boy. The child of incest. They go on to become a very strong nation. They grow in military might. Numbers 21, 
and verse number 23, and Sihon, who is himself an Amorite, and the Amorites are not Ammonites, and we want to make sure we always catch that, would not suffer Israel to pass through his border, but Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel into the wilderness, and he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel smote him with the edge of the sword and possessed his land from Arnon unto Jabbok, even unto the children of Ammon, for the border of the children of Ammon was strong. So they became a very powerful nation in their own right. And yet, God did not give Israel the land that they occupied. It was not theirs to have. Deuteronomy 2.19, 2, When thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, nor meddle with them. You just leave them alone. For I will not give thee the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it to the children of Lot for a possession. And yet, Israel was very often in conflict with them. You can read about that conflict in Judges chapter 3, Judges chapter 10 and 11, 2 Kings chapter 24. So they were neighbors, they were distinct entities, they had some ethnic connection, some blood connection, Abraham and Lot and descendants, and yet they were really to have absolutely nothing to do with each other. But they were not one of the nations that God had commanded to be eradicated. So we go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 19. The narrative flows very easily. We'll not go back and reread it. But David wants to show grace. He wants to show mercy is is the idea, is the word there, loving kindness. To the new king of Ammon, because the new king of Ammon's father had showed grace to him. They they had had an amicable relationship. And so when this young man takes over the kingdom from his father, David sends ambassadors. It is entirely political in in what is going on, folks. It's got spiritual overtones, but it's entirely political. And the Ammonites completely humiliate David's ambassadors. They completely humiliate him. You have there the, the explanation. 2 Samuel 10.4 has the same account, maybe a little more detail, where Hain, wherefore Hanan took David's servants, shaved off the one half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. And this, folks, is just that. It is, is nothing other than humiliation. The Ammonites were well-versed in brutality against their enemies. 1 Samuel 11.2, Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition will I make a covenant with you. This is when Saul is in the early days of his kingdom. and This is part of his military success. On this condition will I make a covenant with you that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for reproach upon Israel. And of course, you know that they said, well, give us time to think about this. And they went and appealed to King Saul, who raised an army and came out in a crushing victory. Fast forward many centuries, Amos 1.13, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have ripped up the women with the child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. 
So these are a brutal people, a military people, a warlike people, but hurting the Israelites was not their intention, folks. Again, humiliating them was. In a world in which masculinity was visibly displayed by the growing of your beard, they shaved half of it. And then they cut off the men's garments to expose skin that should not be exposed. And the men went into hiding. They were greatly ashamed. Mission accomplished. And David meets with his ambassadors and encourages them. Well, stay here. Stay out of sight. Let your beards regrow. And then word gets back to Ammon that now David is livid. Odious is the word. They stink. You can just imagine, folks, if you think about it, how the Ammonite leadership must have thought about what they did. How much they must have enjoyed themselves to retell that story. It's just the way of people. I mean, look, those guys that have been going to Canada, some of us have been going to Canada together since 1991. We retell the same stories. Many of them involve somebody who is sitting here this evening. <clears throat> and there's usually a lot of laughter in the retelling of them. You can imagine how the Ammonites handled this. They went back and they had a good time. Sat around the table rejoicing about how they had humiliated the Israelites. That'll show them. And their accusation was that David was insincere. That David was just sending spies. But again, folks, I would remind you that David knew full well that that land didn't belong to him and he had no intentions of taking it. And so the Ammonites then go out and hire a very large mercenary army, 32,000 chariots. And the Israelites quickly realize that they are fighting a major war, what, 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 what military strategists would call a two-front war, like America fought in World War II, a war against Asia and a war against Europe. And yet, in chapter 19, verses 18 and 19, their victory is complete. And again, folks, as you read through it, we've read it once. I will not go back and reread it all again. As, we, as you read through it, the emphasis is upon how large the opposing army is and how dominant the Israeli army is and the success of their victory. And when you get to 18 and 19, it is a total, total war or victory. When the servants of Hadad-Arezer saw that they were put to the worst before Israel, they made peace with David and became his servants. And the Syrians said, we're not doing that again. And the source of this victory is credited to God by the fascinating figure of Joab. Joab is really a slimy human being, folks. A treacherous man. A, a, a man who is an opportunist. 
And here is his testimony. Be of good courage, verse 13. Let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people and for the cities of our God and let the Lord do that which is good in his sight. And a crushing victory is what is good in God's sight. But the war doesn't end, folks, in chapter 19. The war continues into chapter 20. We have round two. And once again, Israel is totally dominant. Completely victorious. This is not in any way a battle that is a draw. Verse number three of chapter 20. He brought out the people that were in it and cut them with saws. This is King David. And cut them with saws. And harrows of iron and with axes. Even so dealt David with all the cities of the children of Ammon. And David and all the people returned to Jerusalem because it wasn't their land. Episode number two is the last part of chapter 20, verse 4 through 8. And this is a war with the Philistines. Two episodes, the Ammonites and the Philistines. The Philistines are directly related to Cush and Nimrod. Genesis chapter 10 and verse number 8. Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, which doesn't mean, folks, you know this, that God perceived that, boy, this guy can really hunt. This was a man who had staked out his territory to be God's adversary. Nimrod, who is the competition? I have only one competitor, and that is Jehovah. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akhet and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Kela. And reason between Nineveh and Kela, the same as a great city, and Mizraim begat Ludim, the Mizraimite are the Egyptians, and Anamim and Lehabim and Naphtahim and Pathrasim and Kasluhim, out of whom came Philistine. Out of whom came Philistine. Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, with the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. This is the Old Testament version of the rogues gallery, folks, of the ten most wanted list. This is a listing of all the people that Israel would spend much of their time fighting, conquering, or being conquered by. All come from Cush and Nimrod, the man who put his face against God. So these are old enemies. These are very old enemies. They go back a long, long time. But you'll notice that, right, there arose a war with Gezer, at Gezer with the Philistines. And what you have here in this passage, folks, Right, is a recovery of Goliath and his relatives. The people who in many ways represent the military might of the Philistines. 
Goliath was their champion. And of course, every, every five-year-old in a Baptist church knows the story of David and Goliath. The little teenage boy took some stones and stood up against the great and mighty Goliath. So this is the emphasis. Once again, folks, the emphasis in both of these chapters is not that these are close calls, not even that God pulled off a miracle. I mean, all those things might be true, but the emphasis is just simply this, that when Israel was confronted with the greatest strength that could be brought against it, Israel simply dominated. Israel crushed its foes. Even if Israel, as Joab did, anticipated the worst. Okay, my army will be here, your army will be there. If you need help, I'll help you. If I need help, you can help me. But nobody needed help. They just absolutely crushed them. From victory unto victory is literally true in these two chapters. But again, folks, there is a suggestion there of where the strength is and what the agenda is 1 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse number 7. But when he defied Israel, when he defied Israel, then David's nephew killed him. When he defied Israel. So the entire totality of the two chapters is to remind this very defeated people this very discouraged people. And we will turn our attention, by the way, in the next a few weeks from now, and, and look at the condition of those people to whom this book was first written. This is a reminder to them of the greatness of God's power. And also a reminder of, to them of the commitment that God has to his people. So let's turn our attention finally then to making some application of the events. As I've already said repeatedly, in both battle episodes, we are reminded again and again of the strength of the enemy. These were not minor skirmishes. These were major battles. The size of the Amorite army, 32,000 chariots, and the size of the Philistine soldier, descendants of the giant. And David and his men certainly had to fight. These were battles that they had to fight. They had to go to war and take out their swords. But the victories were granted to them by God. And they again are substantial victories. First Chronicles 18.11 Them also, that's reading backwards. This is not a passage that we read this evening. First Chronicles 18, them also David, King David dedicated unto the Lord with the silver and the gold that he brought from all these nations, from Edom, from Moab, from the children of Ammon, and from the Philistines, and from Amalek. So that Solomon, his son, will one day write, the good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. So this passage is helpful, folks, to us 
look at many years down the road and to the Israelites living again in the land of Palestine in a couple of ways. And, and one of them is that it is an illustration of what Psalm 2 is going to look like. And Psalm 2 is a centerpiece of God's ruling intent. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers took counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. The world that we see, we will not have God. He will not dictate our laws. He will not dictate our actions. He will not be a part of our conscience. We will have nothing to do with it. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. And the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The orientation always, folks, is the victory at the cross. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, so that the children of the giants will be crushed by the descendants of David. Be wise now, therefore, O kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, lest he perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And it previews, folks, right? So how, right? So right here are people to whom it looks like God is against them. What is the message? God is not against them. God is for them. And let me ask you, if you would, to turn to Isaiah chapter 11. And I want to close with this. You know, folks, here's what the Lord has said. I will not be mocked. I will not be mocked. Now, when he is mocked, and he is, that doesn't mean instant retaliation, but it does mean ultimate retaliation. But again, two ways of application. One for the immediate recipient, one down the road for us, right? This is a preview of Psalm 2 in action. Right? David ruled as Christ will rule. He will rule, folks, in utter domination. And it previews Christ's greater kingdom. The kingdom, of course, that is inaugurated at Calvary and we are still waiting for the consummation of that kingdom. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse number 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding 
in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. And the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall be down, lay down together. Let me get that right. The young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be the root of, a root of Jesse, that we return to the theme, a description of the king and the kingdom, which shall stand for an ensign to the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his reign shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass that day, folks. Now notice verse 11. In verse number 11, again, is something that any Israelite should just celebrate. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. The second time which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. Now that turning us all into end time events, folks, uh, something that is precious and that really matters, there are a whole host of believing people who really believe that this is not to be taken too literally. But there is a very clear and emphatic statement made there that the Lord is going to recover his people the second time. The remnant of his people the second time. There is a future regathering coming. And that will be that will be when the kingdom comes. So what was going on, folks, what was going on in the immediate day, right, a devastated people, a people almost wiped out of existence by the hand of their God, one in ten, perhaps, survive the judgment of the Babylon, Babylonians. And a remnant of them come back to the land of Israel. And it is hard going for them. Seventy years the city has just laid there desolate, it is hard going for them, and there is tremendous opposition against their return and what they're doing. It is very easy to be discouraged. Here is a reminder that what they are experiencing in that moment is not the end of the story. And I would just point out to us, Westwood Heights, that what is going on in the church today is not the end of the story. God is not done. The kingdom has not come, but it is coming and it will be as Christ says. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious prospect of a coming kingdom. 
And may the arrival of the king and his kingdom be the orientation of our lives. We are waiting for our king and his kingdom. And may we wait for him faithfully. We pray, God, that our ministry would be fruitful, but above all, that we would be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.